0: Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. Do me a quick favor. If you like what you hear at Planet Microcap, please take two seconds and give us five stars on Spotify or Apple. This helps with the search engine so that more folks can also discover and engage with all things microcap stocks. Our next investor conference is less than two months away. The Planet Microcap Showcase Vancouver is coming up on September 6th and 7th, 2023 at the Fairmont Waterfront in Vancouver, BC. Be sure to check out uh, an episode that I recently did with Paul Andreola, founder of Small Cap Discoveries and lead sponsor of our event, where we kind of go into... Why we're doing this, the whole bit. And we also just announced some of the initial companies uh, that will be joining us in Vancouver. So be sure to go to planetmicrocapshowcase.com and see the list, uh, the initial list right there, uh, as well as our uh, speakers who will be joining us, including Paul Andriola, Dave Barr from Pender Fund. Uh, Brent Todd from Canacor Genuity, as well as Ryan Irvin from Keystone Financial. So, to register and attend, please go to planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vancouver. My guest on the show today is Rick Rule, investor, speculator, and founder of Rule Investment Media. I haven't had Rick on the show since September 2021. During that time, we've seen gold tap $2,000 an ounce and remain just below, the lithium craze, and much more. I invited Rick on the show to hear what metals and mining narratives he's been paying attention to in the last 6 to 12 months and for the next 6 to 12 months. You know, Rick also does a deep dive on the three reasons why there has been a junior mining microcap malaise, his criteria for finding the top 5% junior mining stocks, as well as his thoughts on royalty and streaming companies. Whether you're an active investor in metals and mining, you passively follow, or even hate the industry altogether, my chat with Rick Rule has nuggets of wisdom for each and every one of you. So thank you again for tuning in to the Planet Microcap Podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Rick Rule. Rick, great to see you, man. How are you doing? Robert, pleasure to be back with you. Thank you. Absolutely. Look, it's been uh, it's been over a year or almost two years now since the last time we did an interview together. We put that out on September 2021, and without beating around the bush, I figured we'd just get right into it. You know, um, since then we've uh, we've seen gold. Ta- Actually, before we get into it, I do want to give a plug. The reason i also wanted to invite you on you have your conference coming up in boca raton the rural investment symposium that's happening july twenty third, twenty 27 2023 so i'm sure i'll we'll put a link in there for plug for people to go and see that now to get to the nitty-gritty uh like i said since september 2021 you know we've seen gold tap 2000 an ounce uh, and remain just below that we've seen a lithium craze and all sorts of other crazes out there so i mean in your in when you reflect on the last six to twelve months, let's say, what what would you say are the main narratives that you've been paying attention to?
1: Well, I, I think probably three for uh, micro crap resource investors or speculators. Uh, the first would be the impact of uh, higher interest rates uh, and the recedence of fear in the broad economy uh, and the impact that that's had on moderating gold prices. Gold uh, and, to a lesser extent, silver, in my experience over 50 years, have done extraordinarily well when people are concerned about the efficacy of their purchasing power in other financial instruments. Uh, The increase, as an example, uh, in the interest paid on 12-month U.S. Treasuries has gone from 1.5% to 5%, which is to say the competing yields uh, to gold have tripled making these instruments relatively more attractive than they appeared in 2000. And two, uh, despite the fact that we have raised interest rates in the U.S., the U.S. economy uh, feels at least surprisingly strong. Uh, Home sales, as an example, have declined, but housing prices haven't declined that much, probably a a gap between the bid and the ask. But whatever it's due to, The U.S. economy seems at least uh, fairly strong, stronger than I would have expected with the increase in interest rates that we've seen. What that means is that there is more confidence uh, both in the U.S. economy uh, and also in conventional savings products, which has, uh, I think it's safe to say, weakened retail demand for gold. You will note that demand for gold among central banks and some institutional investors hasn't weakened at all. But in terms of the aspirations of microcap investors, the gold narrative uh, that existed in 2019-2020 uh, has subsided. Uh, and one consequence of that is that gold-oriented equities, other than the great big ones, uh, have subsided have subsided too. On the other side of the equation, um, uh, for broad commodities markets, things like copper Uh, iron, ore, um, nickel to some extent, uh, and certainly oil and gas, uh, recession fears uh, have really played on those markets. It is very clear to anybody who pays attention that in the major industrial commodity groups, we're facing a supply cliff, which means that supplies really begin to falter four or five years out. But despite that, You see a moderation in the futures markets for commodities, and you see very, very, very soft prices for the major commodities equities, particularly relative to their earnings and their dividend powers. I think this is explained by the fact that the market sees a recession in the offing. Uh, You can have declining supplies if you have declining demand, and prices (laughs) don't move. And certainly the inverted yield curve. Uh, suggest that financial markets think that we're headed for a recession uh, as well i don't want to weigh in on that robert by the way i have correctly absolutely correctly called 17 of the last three recessions so (laughs) i don't pay too much attention to my own forecasting as a a, a, as a credit analyst i'm always afraid of credit quality uh, and i tend to be more (laughs) of a doomster (laughs) than i ought to be
0: but I think the third part. I mean, Rick, record, we're gonna we're gonna try and stay away from doom porn today, okay?
1: You know, yep. that's our that's our that's our goal. Yeah, hey, unless you I, want to, we could go then. No, okay. I I I think that's a very good thing. Uh, <laughs> the truth is that money is never made by pessimists. Sometimes money is kept by pessimists, but it's never made by pessimists. Okay. I For think sure, the sure. microcap malaise in the junior resource market, particularly the mining market, uh, is really uh, uh, a function of the underperformance of the companies uh it's a hard thing to say it gets me a lot of hate from the issuers but you'll need to hear me out I'll make you sick before I make you well later in the interview if you merged every junior mining company in the world say let's say there's 2500 of them or so into one company and you call that company Junior Explorco. Co in a very 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 good year that business would lose two billion dollars in an average year probably four billion dollars in a bad year probably 10 billion dollars and ironically. Uh, what they consider to be a bad a good year which is a year that they could raise a lot of money is a bad year from an investor's viewpoint because they have more money to lose i suspect that between 80 and 90 percent of the public companies in the world the junior mining companies in the world are lifestyle exercises are worse they're value traps it doesn't mean that the whole market can't do well on occasion uh, as doug casey used to say when the wind blows even turkeys can fly uh, the question for speculators is how to find a well enough fed turkey that that turkey can survive until the storm comes. All that pessimism uh, hides a wonderful fact that's been responsible for my successful my uh, successful speculative efforts, which is that sort of 5% of the sector, 5% of the 2,500 companies, maybe 150 companies, generate so much performance, that they had legitimacy and even value to the sector we about 25 20 years ago had a young uh intern that's financial services speak for slave uh who pulled 25 tsxv juniors at random looked at the balance sheets and the income statements going back 5 years and discovered to his surprise and to my horror that the average junior spent over 60% of capital raised on general and administrative expenses, less than 40% went in the ground. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're looking at the malaise in the micro-cap juniors, you need to add back recession fears, uh, increasing confidence, uh, and increasing interest rates available to savers, and the underperformance of the sector as a whole. Uh, Against that gloomy backdrop, Uh, I'm fairly aggressively buying some of the juniors. I have done reasonably well over the last 50 years, segregating in movie sense, the good from the bad from the ugly. Uh, Most speculators don't bother to do that for some reason. Their investment criteria is got a hunch, bet a bunch, which means when the TSXV uh, over an 18-month period is like it is, off 45%, there is no segregation as terms to what in terms of what gets sold off. The good juniors, the medium juniors, and the bad juniors all fall down together, uh, which means that the price of the good juniors uh, has declined over the last two years uh, to reflect uh, what I think is, in many cases, great value relative to what existed uh, two years ago, which was not great value. You mentioned at the beginning of the interview too, and I'm sorry to turn this into a rant, but this is important stuff. Great, to talk this about. is
0: why this is why I have you on. I don't I don't mind to let you cook. So Great. just keep just keep cooking. You're good. You know, you
1: you managed to say at the beginning of the interview that there were uh, always crazes, and I think crazes are well known uh, and, and well named. People who participate in crazes are crazy. Uh, lithium would be a wonderful example. Uh, a lot of guys who run lithium companies today couldn't spell lithium seven years ago. They failed looking for gold they failed growing marijuana they failed in launching uh some sort of cryptocurrency uh and now they're with the latest code craze uh bit uh, par- pardon me lithium and my suspicion given their track record uh is that they will fail one more time i note too that the population of lithium companies in the world has grown from probably 10 seven years ago to probably two hundred today. What are the probabilities that there are 200 management teams in the world that are experienced in and successful around lithium? I would say that the probability of that on a percentage basis is zero. Uh, And and I'm not doing this to say don't speculate on lithium. What I am saying is that you make money and resources by finding things that are out of favor, not hot. Uh, You have a commodity which has increased in seven years by 400% in price. Markets work. The cure for high prices is everywhere and always high prices. High prices uh, cause more supply to come online. In the case of the lithium business, we don't need more raw lithium. We need more lithium processing capacity. At the same time that they cause users of lithium to be more efficient fabricators, uh, or to find substitutes for lithium. Again, I am not saying that if somebody explores some godforsaken part of the world uh, and, and discovers a very, very high grade, very, very high quality lithium mine, uh, a mine with, say, $10 billion in in situ reserves and resources that will be in the best quartile worldwide in uh, all in sustaining costs and the best quartile worldwide uh, in return on capital employed, that I wouldn't be attracted to it uh i don't mind being right in any commodity it's just unusual that you are right in a commodity where you have as many competitors as you do lithium where the price of the commodity has already gone up fourfold now it's interesting for speculators that speculators who uh, buy a narrative the lithium narrative of course being distributed power batteries uh, the increase in price validates the narrative And ironically, in speculators' minds, the narrative becomes truer, even as it becomes valueless. Uh, The value in the narrative after the price of the commodity has gone up by 400% (laughs) is precisely a quarter as attractive as it was had you adopted the narrative early on. And so I I would caution your speculators uh, on the fourth probable reason for the malaise in micro-cap mining shares, which is to say, investor performance that's geared to, that's geared to reality, uh, pardon me, geared to narrative, uh, rather than geared to math. Uh, the fact that people uh, chase commodities that are in favor and hot, that have experienced rapid share price escalations, in favor, uh, uh, or issuing, I should say, uh, in preference to uh, commodities that are out of favor with management teams that are experienced. And I would suggest that uh, investors uh, disenchantment with their own performance is the fourth reason why micro cap stocks are weak. And I would say that that very weakness in micro cap resource stocks is precisely the reason why at this moment I'm attracted to them. Absolutely.
0: All right. Well, there's a lot that I want to dig in there. First. But the, I think the first thing I want to talk about is, you know, I, I think you, you've been on here before where we've kind of talked about how like, you know, mo- a good high percentage of junior minors, you know, it's a lifestyle right. type situation, you know, uh, and, and uh, 80 to 95% is in that place. But you know let, let's talk about that infrastructure itself because listen we've gone to all these events and you know you know who the players are i mean you were working for your former employer you know you you guys uh funded and financed so many of these companies continue i mean they continue to sprout continue to do right. so today you know so i mean it seems like it's also kind of a fundamental problem of the infrastructure itself where it's like all right you know uh, listen you as the financier you make money on the deal you probably structure it so there's a bit of a warrant right and the company doesn't care. All right, so my stock price takes a hit, whatever. That money is now going back into my paycheck. And, you know, okay, a little bit's going to go on the ground and we're good to go, right? So, I mean, that's a clear fundamental problem in just how the infrastructure works. And, you know, why would any investor want to invest in a in a game where it's like, all right, I know that I'm going to get diluted and they're going to be fine, but I'm, I'm going to be left in the dust?
1: I, I think the sooner that the investor comes to recognize that, The sooner that the circumstance changes, uh, make no mistake, uh, Wall Street, Bay Street, Howe Street exist to take your money. It's your job to make sure that they give you back more than they took from you. Uh, The truth is that most investors, most people on the receiving end of outgoing phone calls from Bay Street and Howe Street prefer hearing narrative. They prefer being excited. Uh, I was, among other things, a retail stockbroker for 40 years, and I know when I got on the phone with most investors and I started in on the math, I I could feel their eyes drop Uh, when I talked about insider selling, when I talked about uh, general and administrative expense relative to in-ground expense when i talked about all in sustaining capital when i talked about all of the factors that made a company a good speculation most speculators eyes glazed over Uh, if rather than that i talked about the potential impact of trudeau or obama uh and uh on gold uh all of a sudden they got very excited and it's odd that speculators get excited about the gold price when they're speculating on companies that don't have any gold they're looking for gold so you know i really think that what you say is very true and i think that the first line of defense is the investor himself or herself there is so much data out there uh and investors need to avail themselves of it and on my own channel rule investment media uh, you may know that i have now graded over 80,000 individual investor portfolios they submit the portfolios i rank the stocks in the st- in the portfolio 1 to 10 comment on issues where i think i ha- where i think uh, i my comments might have value and i've learned a lot uh, about how investors act at various points in time and i've seen the impact of promotion and narrative on broad numbers of people. I've seen the same mistakes uh, over and over and over again. I have asked every uh, listener on my channel, there's 80,000 of them, uh, to consider strongly limiting the number of stocks in their portfolio to the number of hours per month that they're willing to spend studying the stocks. Reading the annual reports, reading the proxy statements, reading the insider filings, uh, reading the quarterlies, the income statements, the balance sheets. If you're going to have 20 stocks, you need to spend 20 hours. And by 20 hours, I don't mean listening to Jim Rickard's interviews about how the world's going to hell in a handbasket, although I think you should do that too. I'm talking about spending 20 hours per month doing fundamental research on the companies in your portfolio. Robert, people will send me laundry lists of 80 stocks. Their portfolios look like mutual funds. Uh, and uh, so sometimes I call these people just for fun to educate myself. Uh, and they're usually surprised that I uh, actually study their individual portfolios like this. But, you know, I'll say, okay, let's start at the top, right? So I don't know what's got A in it. Uh, amalgamated Aardvark. Uh, you know, that'll be the, the first penny dreadful in the account. I'll say, oh, yeah, I was really curious about that. What do you think about that, Rick? And I say, well, until this moment, I was blissfully unaware of its existence. I didn't think about it at all. Why do you own it? Oh, well, let me think. Oh, yeah, Bob Bishop recommended it. Oh, my God, Bob Bishop's been dead. You know, he's been retired for 15 years. I, I mean, that's the reason you own the stock? Yeah. Well, when the reason owner stock goes away and Bob Bishop went away, the stock has to go away too. Oh no, Rick, I couldn't sell it. Why couldn't you sell it? Well, I paid $4 a share for it and it's selling for 40 cents a share now. And if I sold it, I'd lose $3 and 60 cents a share. And then I have to say, no, sir, you've already lost $3 and 60 cents a share. The question is, what do you do with the last 40 cents? If you like it, if you liked it at four dollars you ought to love it at 40 cents if you're not willing to sell it you ought to buy a bunch do you understand how this discussion um points up uh i think what's wrong with the junior mining business people will spend hours uh, price comparing uh, and looking at the features around a 400 winter coat uh, and, and then they'll put fifty thousand dollars into speculative stocks uh on the basis of got a hunch, bet a bunch. It's Rick, insane. I, I, but how do we change
0: this? I mean, like between you know, listen, I've been interviewing you for years. I got Brent on. You do a great job. Daniela Cambone does a great job. Like, I mean, there's some really good people that are doing good work trying to educate the masses of like, are th- this. You could get killed, like, because of all these mechanics out there. What can change? I, it racks I, my brain.
1: I I think what changes is. Um, an understanding of pareto's law uh, our job is to make this information available to people uh, pareto's law teaches you that 80% of the poor performance will be accomplished by 20% of the people by the way it's a bell shaped curve so a different 20% of the people will experience 80% of the losses <laughs> most of the people will be in that center the so called what did uh, can say the great unwashed Uh, what's interesting to me is that in a large enough population base, the, these performance dispersal curves, uh, conformably align. I I know that's wordy, but what that means is that if you take the 20% that have achieved 80% of the gains, uh, and you run that 20% through the same performance dispersal curve, uh, 20% of the 20% will generate 80% of the 80%. Which means that 4% of the population base in any given activity, say junior mining stock exploration as an example, uh, or junior mining stock speculation, uh, 4% of the population will generate 65% of the gains. And I'm forced to say, although I'm in retirement now, that uh, in terms of educating, one must reach as broad an audience as one can. And then one must concentrate their efforts uh, on the four or 5% that are apt, hardworking students. (laughs) Uh I'm fully prepared to concede that out of my own database, you know, out of an 80,000 person database, uh, I will probably be able to materially affect the the fortune of the four or 5,000 people who do the work and exert dividend, it doesn't uh, exert uh, effort. It doesn't mean by the way, that I shouldn't continue to expand effort, uh, spend effort on the others. It just means in terms of the expectation that I might have uh, of doing good, which is sort of what I wanna do in my declining years, that most of the benefits of my effort uh, will be achieved by a fairly small proportion of my audience. At
0: the end of the day, if we can affect one life positively with yep. what we do, like it makes it all worth it, but right. all right. So, so getting back to the 5%, you know, talking more, uh, you know, get, getting yep. our juices flowing on the 5% that, uh, you know, of the junior miners that you'd say are, you know, actually doing some real stuff here. You know, what yep. would you say are some of your criteria right now for finding that 5% of the 2,500?
1: Uh, First of all, staying out of other people's way. Uh, you either need to go in the front end of grassroots exploration, which everybody hates right now because it's very variable. So you need to go there. The fact that everybody hates it, you know, it's like buying straw hats in winter. It's cheap. The other part that's really cheap uh, are the boring part of the Lassonde curve, uh, maybe right before the project's been financed or after it's been financed in the construction phase. So I'm in front end exploration uh, and I'm in development because everybody else hates it. (laughs) I'm also, I must admit, in the royalty and streaming business, simply because it's such a good business. For the investment part of my portfolio, the idea that I could be a 90% margin business as opposed to an 18% margin business has some arithmetic appeal to it. Uh, So I do that. But I think the first thing that you do is stay out of other people's way to the extent that you can. If you have to screen 2,500 companies to find yourself 150 that are investable, Uh, You try to find ways to screen companies so that you won't have to waste time looking at them, so that you can lavish more love, care, and attention on the ones that you think might make you some money. People end up being hugely, hugely, hugely important. Pareto's law comes back here, too. Most people uh, who go into the mining business as explorationists, promoters, whatever they do, never succeed at anything. Most geologists never find a mine. They're never part of a team that finds a mine. But you find other people, uh, Ralph Roberts comes to, not not Ralph Roberts, um, it doesn't matter the name, but you you find other people that have discovered 10 mines or 12 mines or 15 mines. Uh, You find uh, people who as property identifiers and company builders that have been serially successful, Uh, we call them the living legends at our conference. Uh, people like Ross Beattie, uh, people like, uh, rest in peace, Adolph Lundin, rest in peace, Lucas Lundin, um, people like Bob Quatermain. Uh, incredible people. Uh, and sticking as much as you can with people who have been serially successful or at least people who have been successful one time at a task that closely resembles the task at hand is important now robert if somebody comes on your show uh, and describes themselves as having been a success in mining but it turns out that that success was operating a gold mine in Archean terrain two billion year old rock in french-speaking quebec but the task at hand is exploring rather than operating uh, for copper gold porphyries in 15 million year old accreted terrain in the Spanish-speaking Andean Highlands, while they have been a success, the success is not related to the task at hand. And so it's important when you look at people that the people not only be successful, but that they be successful at the task at hand. And this just doesn't relate to the promoter. When you're looking at these companies uh, and you're asking, hopefully, the CEO, but if you have to, the IR person, uh, take me through your management team, not just the major ego, Right. Take me through the management team. Take me through the chief operating officer. Uh, Take me through the VP of exploration. Has the VP of exploration had much experience in this kind of terrain, looking for this kind of deposit, Uh, looking in these rock packages? Uh, Too often, somebody wanted to start a mining company, went to a headhunter, and they hired a geologist. And the geologist doesn't know bumpkus about the task at hand. Now, it doesn't mean that he or she can't get lucky. Uh, But counting on luck is a very, very, very bad uh, investment technique. Similarly, uh, what is the task at hand? Uh, If it's exploration, has the CFO uh, been involved in exploration budgeting before? Has the CFO been involved in budgeting in the Peruvian highlands? Does the CFO uh, understand what a reasonable quote for transporting drilling mud by helicopter in the andean highlands look like and by the way does the cfo have experience raising money <laughs> uh, uh, the directors let's say there's five directors why was each director chosen what specific area of the business does this director oversee uh, or what specific task are they useful at Is the director, as an example, good at access to British or German capital markets? That's a really good reason to have a director. Uh, Is the director a skilled explorationist? By the way, if they're exploring in Peru, do any of them spend time in Peru, or do they explore Peru from Vancouver or Toronto? Just out of curiosity, do any of them speak Spanish? You know, it happens that having Spanish language skills is useful in in Peru. So I think people uh, are important in addition to the sort of contrarian instinct to begin with. Uh, I think, too, the size of the prize uh, is increasingly important to me. What you learn, particularly in exploration, is that most of your decisions are mistakes. Uh, uh, The arithmetic around exploration when I was in university was that one in (laughs) 3,000 mineralized anomalies became a mine. You need to do a lot. To balance the odds in your favor but one of the things that you can do is understand that if you're disciplined your failed speculations can cost you 25 percent but your successes can make you a thousand percent and that's wonderful arithmetic a thousand percent gain amortizes a lot of 25 losses and leaves room left over for an acceptable rate of return but it only does it if you are looking for big rewards when you're taking big risks So I would suggest to your listeners that any target that doesn't have uh, in situ recoverable reserves or resources associated with the target of less than $2 billion isn't worth your time. A half a million ounce gold deposit has every risk associated with it that a 5 million ounce gold deposit has. But a half a million ounce gold deposit can only make you a little bit of money. And a 5 million ounce deposit can make you a lot of money. (laughs) So if you're going to take big risks, you got to be in the game for big rewards. Now we get into the weeds a little tiny bit, Robert, but you got to get in the weeds. Uh, building companies really is uh, accomplishing small tasks on the way to a big goal. Exploration, in particular, is answering a series of unanswered questions, learning more about the deposit and its viability. It's important to ask the management team what's the most important unanswered question? That you have in front of you how much value do you think it would add how much does it cost for the test and what is the time required for the test robert i would suggest to you that i've been answering i've been asking that question for 30 years and 80 percent of the companies that i asked the question of have never considered the problem in that regard i suspect that to them the most important unanswered question is will i be getting a salary in 18 months and while i understand that's vital to them it's of less interest to me frankly uh so this intellectual pathway to adding value uh answering unanswered questions is important and it's important that when you ask the question you ask the following questions how was the exploration thesis developed was it based on the facts at hand or was it developed to mine bay street for money uh is the method proposing to test the thesis valid? Uh, will it yield an answer that the market will care about? Importantly, how long will it take? Mm-hmm. Rick,
0: not to stop you, but what? What would? How can you tell the difference between a thesis that's clearly like, all right, this is just to go raise capital versus, okay, this is this has this thesis yeah, may ask, have some merit.
1: Ask uh, how the thesis was developed. Who developed the thesis? Do they have any expertise? I mean, you know, if the guy was a house painter, do you really care what his exploration thesis was? Um, uh, And uh, ask him or her to explain to you the ground truths that went into the thesis. In other words, what data caused them to develop the thesis? Mostly when you ask that, they don't have one. (laughs) Now, it, well, it's, it's this, like an, this, there's an
0: elephant here or oh yeah, there it, was it, this mine was discovered here like is that the an example of that like well look, I, it, it, I don't have specific it, data that, but there's no that can that can help a
1: lot if okay. somebody says you know listen we're the best place to look for gold is in the head frame of a gold mine there was a gold mine here it was shut down it was shut down during a period of 250 dollars an ounce gold that is one really good data point so then you say okay uh, I get it. The old timers probably left some gold in the ground because it wasn't uh, economic for them to discover it, $250 gold. What data do you have? What is the surface expression? Uh, what geophysical data do you have? What supports the target? You're suggesting that there's a parallel lens, as an example. What data do you have to support that there's a parallel lens? I asked this whole series of questions very recently of Bob Quatermain. Uh, the chairman of Dakota Gold, somebody I've made money with a long time. Disclosure I own Dakota Gold. Uh, and what he's trying to do is very interesting. They're, they've consolidated the old Homestake Mining District in South Dakota, 40 million ounce historic producer. And I said, So what you're doing is looking for additional ledges that somehow people missed over 150 years? He said, Well, actually, yes. First of all, uh, ledges away from the old one. But remember, 150 years ago, they didn't have access to, as an example, downhole geophysics. (laughs) You know, they had to go by pick over there. And we don't have to do that. We can cover, you know, 30 square miles of claims with geophysics. But we're also looking for other styles of mineralization, hanging wall mineralization, foot wall mineralization, because any event that emplaced that much gold uh, was profound enough and multi-phase enough that there doesn't necessarily need to be one style of mineralization. And by the way, Here's some hanging wall samples in a different rock package that uh, run six grams gold. Uh, in addition to that, if you look to the west of us, there's Wharf resources uh, in a very, very different style of deposit, uh, a surface deposit. So we're actually looking for three styles of mineralization. This is a really good answer.
0: <laughs> you know? Well, I was doing that. Like, are you shareholder in
1: Wharf? Just a guy. Compliance.
0: Compliance. Bob is uh, going I'm, out.
1: I'm not a shareholder of Wharf. Okay. Uh, right. I am. I am a shareholder of. Uh, Uh, of Dakota. Dakota, But and and I I use that not to suggest that people uh buy Dakota. I'm using it to say that Quarterman and his team uh can describe their thesis uh and, and they can give me the reasons that they give me the way that they developed the thesis. Two, they can tell me uh how much of their budget is geared to testing each piece of this thesis. And how long it will take and how long it will take is important you know if if it's going to take 18 months to get a yes answer and it's a yes answer it's getting a yes answer that causes you to believe that you're going to get a reasonable return on your capital if the time frame that you have yourself for the stock is 90 days and it's going to take a year and a half 18 months to test the thesis how on earth are you ever going to be right You need to adjust the time frame that you have in your own mind as a speculator with the time frame that is necessary to achieve the result that you're trying to achieve. And then, too, you have to have the means. Uh, Many times companies have told me when they've answered the unanswered question, uh, you know, series correctly, I say, well, how much money do you think you need? say, well... Let me see, 18 months, probably going to take $5 million. Okay. And how much is it going to take you to run the company for 18 months? Like the GA? Oh, million and a half bucks. So you need six and a half million, right? Right. How much do you have? A million eight. Well, how's that going to work? It takes six and a half million dollars to get a yes answer, and you got a million eight in the treasury. I mean, if you tell me we're going to raise some more money, at least that's an honest answer. Uh, if you tell me you effectively have the money raised, then I want to know from who, <laughs> on what terms. You know, if if as an as a speculator, you don't know that they have the means to answer the unanswered question, and you, in your own mind, in terms of your patients, don't have the time, the probability that you're going to succeed is very very low, and the fault is yours, not the promoters. Absolutely.
0: Well, let's. I want to shift to one aspect of the industry that you brought up as one of your, I guess, I think you said favorite, but but uh, royalties and streamers, because yep. amongst our generalist crowd like i'd say that probably gets the most looked at just because you know when it comes to speculating sometimes that you know we just went into the weeds for about 20 minutes about how 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 difficult that can be which that's not to say people don't like to do the work you got to do the work even when you're talking about royalties and streamers because hey they're also speculating too Absolutely critical, by the way. Absolutely critical. But so let's talk about that a little bit. You know, why, what, what are, not why, I think it's pretty obvious, like royalties and streamers, you know, if they're investing correctly, you could find a mine, they're generating some cash flow and whatnot. You know, but in your opinion, what are some of your criteria when you're looking at some of these royalties and streamers as a business and, you know, just your criteria for the good
1: ones? Let me start off by saying that generalist speculators who want a position in resources, who want the resource beta, might consider constructing a whole portfolio of royalty and streamers and never going anywhere else in every sector of the extractive market the royalty and streaming companies uh have the lowest risk beta which is a very good thing in a rip roaring bull market of course the companies with the highest margins have the least leverage uh, so you will miss part of a bull market but probably over the course of a decade uh a, a beta constructed portfolio around royalty and streamers uh, may at least be the best solution that a, a a generalist speculator could have so editorial out of the way okay um what i look for and, and let's let's classify mineral royalty companies in three categories uh the majors uh the majors would be franco you know wheaton Probably a Cisco probably triple flag uh probably uh, did I say a Cisco, yeah, a Cisco triple flag you know those kind of companies. Uh, then there are the sort of large intermediates, the uh sandstorms the company like companies like that. and then there's the small ones. uh the beauty about the large ones, by the way, they're not cheap. uh they are priced at real premiums. but I've come to understand that they deserve the premiums uh franco nevada the largest of the companies the last time i checked had 32 employees including the receptionist they run that assets that asset on a 12 basis point management fee uh, they have 90 percent operating margins which is to say their gross is their net it's a very good business and they have royalties on very 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 large properties in my experience large properties generate good surprises And small companies and small projects generate bad surprises. Uh, But really, in terms of uh, market beta, uh, the investor and speculator has to do a lot less work with uh, Franco and Wheaton because the management teams have proven themselves. If you look at 30 years at their track record with deployment of capital, it's excellent. And the surprises that you're going to get from the portfolio are almost always going to be good. When you come down those companies, even to the large ones, you have to look for some durable competitive advantage enjoyed by the company. What is it that will allow them to outcompete for smaller royalties? Franco and Wheaton, which generate so much free cash, and their peers. You have to look for a geographic special, uh, specialization, a commodity specialization, deep relationships with investment banks. You have to look for some durable competitive advantage or... You have to find a company with stabilized assets that's substantially cheaper than the rest of them Uh, if you find one that's substantially cheaper only two good things can happen one the share price can go up to bridge the gap or two they get taken over it's a capital intensive business And, and over time a weak competitor with a high cost of capital gets taken over by a strong competitor with a low cost of capital when you get down to the juniors Uh, Asset quality and sustainability is the first thing you look at. Will the company exist two years from now? Do they have time to work the game plan? Uh, What is the company actually worth? If you look at the package of assets in the company and you try to ascertain what you could sell that package of assets to a competitor for, what the liquidation value would be, and you compare that to the share price. The juniors should be at a discount to net asset value. Because you're taking more risk and you can measure these net asset values. But most importantly, with the juniors, you need to look at durable competitive advantage uh, and specialization. As an example, uh, disclosure, I'm long Empress Royalty, a very, very, very small uh, royalty company, not one for the faint of heart. Um uh, the young woman who runs the company uh, had worked for years at Endeavor Financial, which is one of the most successful mine finance houses on the planet. I have, you know, structured and raised, I don't know, eight, ten billion dollars. Uh, and Endeavor has been retained on behalf of Empress to originate royalties for them, put them in the royalty package. Now, that's the durable competitive advantage. It turns out, uh, looking back, that prior to my investment, that the company had raised just shy of 20 million dollars and the net present value of their royalty package was 43 million dollars which is to say their track record in terms of return on capital employed was pretty good and the net present value of 43 million dollars compared with the enterprise value then uh, of about 30 million dollars 22 million uh, market cap and 8 million in debt so it was selling at a discount to net asset value there was a durable competitive advantage Uh, And there was a very, very, very strong focus on uh, royalty generation uh, that uh, was in third world and emerging markets. They didn't try to compete with generalist firms in markets like Australia and the United States. They wanted to compete in Africa. They wanted to compete in Latin America. And they wanted to compete in circumstances that were either in production or being brought into production where the financing was being done by Endeavor. Uh, that's the sort of granularity that I think you have to go into if you participate in the junior sector.
0: Very good. All right. Uh, and uh, you mentioned some of the majors or shareholder sure in any of the, the major Yeah, roles? Absolutely.
1: Okay. I mean, frankly, uh, with regards to both uh, uh, Franco and Wheaton, yeah, the sale decision will likely be made by my heirs. Uh, I've owned them for a very long time. I've weathered several dramatic share price declines. I don't care. I have a sense of the value of the business uh, with regards to those positions. I'm not a trader. Uh, you know if if I ever got down to uh, you know two natural resource stocks in my portfolio, those would be the two. Uh, for my participation in gold beta, I realize that most of your listeners neither have my means nor my patience. But I literally mean, with regards to Franco uh, and uh, Wheaton, that the cell decision will likely be made by my estate.
0: Very good. All right. Well, I know I only got you for like 10 or so more minutes. So I wanted to kind of close out with, you know, not, not crystal balling this or anything like that. But in terms of narrative, you know, I asked you about the narratives you were paying attention to the last yeah. 6 to 12 months. <clears throat> what are the narratives now that you're paying attention to for the next 6 to 12 months?
1: Two things. Uh, What is hated? Uh, Energy's hated. So oil and gas has been a great place to be for three years. (laughs) People say, what about alternative energy? What about the fact that Biden hates it? Trudeau hates it? Greta hates it? They hate it. I love it. Uh, I think peak oil demand occurs in about 2060. I'll give you a little statistic. Uh, Last 40 years, uh, our civilization has spent almost five trillion dollars on alternative energies by the way i'm not opposed to alternative energies spent five trillion dollars and they've reduced the market share of fossil fuels from a high of 82 percent all the way down to 81 percent five trillion dollars has reduced fossil fuels market share by one percent partly because of growing energy markets uh oil and gas is cheap <laughs> both in terms of beta and alpha, and it ain't going away despite the best efforts of the big thinkers. Uranium too uh, has uh, traumatized people who were attracted to the thesis in 2020 uh, as though the ensuing three years have been a lifetime. The fact that money was raised and deployed by the juniors in 2019, 2020 at prices that were often three times the prices today means that if the company's outlook is the same the companies are precisely three times more attractive than they were at the time that they raised the money meanwhile uh the time element with regards to the uranium bull market is done Uh, to me the catalyst was always when does the japanese nuclear fleet restart we were always going to be fine in the uranium business in the long term because it's carbon-free baseload power and the chinese are building plants like mad among others But the near-term catalyst was the pace of Japanese restarts. When will that occur? What year? 2023. It's on us. And there's transformation in the uranium business from spot market to term market. The term market is important because it gives the producers the price stability they need for the product that allows them to finance new inventory into production, which we're seeing right now. But because of the poor price performance of uranium stocks, particularly relative to uh, anticipated You know, the narrative in 2019, 2020, despite the fact that the companies have made material advances in the last three years, they're selling at half or a third the price, which means that they are precisely two or three times more attractive than they were then uh, with the time element used up. So I'm certainly attracted to the uranium space Uh, and I'm attracted to the prospect generators in terms of grassroots exploration, using their brains and other people's money make discovery this is something uh, that's not for risk averse investors or impatient investors the search for 10 baggers for 20 baggers for 30 baggers necessitates more failures than successes and many people don't have the psychological stability to endure failure uh, i do for better or for worse A- and i'm attracted to uh the developers in the boring part of the lasonde curve uh, if you build large positions, particularly in periods of dramatic price declines, after uh, I should say, if the company completes on time on budget for a nameplate capacity, these stocks completely re-rate. And if they don't get, if they don't re-rate, they get taken over. And I love both of those things. The idea that I can endure twelve or eighteen months worth of boredom—by the way, boredom is better than terror—with uh, an outcome that's probable as opposed to possible. Is the sort of value proposition that I really, really, really like. I guess the third thing I look for now is political jurisdictions that are hated. Uh, you don't find big deposits very often in places that lots of people look. Uh, you have to go places that people don't look. For big copper gold deposits, I think probably you look for the you look in the Tethian metallogenic belt, which means that you look in some harsh countries kyrgyzstan uzbekistan kazakhstan pakistan afghanistan turkey hard places uh congo zambia uh cambodia when i look at the places i've made money in the last three years they're places that other people fear to tread i'm not saying that political risk isn't real by the way i lost uh, a reasonable sum of money a couple years ago in russia having made a lot of money in Russia for the preceding 20 years. So the political risk game isn't uh, without risk, but I would much rather take political risk personally than technical risk.
0: Very good. All right, Rick, we covered so much. You know how much I appreciate you taking the time speaking with me. So where can our audience go and find more information on Rule Investment Media? And if it's not too late to sign up for the symposium.
1: Love to see your audience at my symposium, either physically in Boca Raton, Florida, or virtually. You can see my conference now from the comfort of your own home. And by the way, either physically or virtually, you'll have access to all the conference tapes for six months. It's impossible to absorb 50 or 52 hours of programming well in four days. So the recordings are invaluable. Like all of my other investment products, by the way, if you pay the tuition and you come and you didn't think you'd get your money's worth, Gold-plated money-back guarantee. Tell me you didn't get your money's worth, and I'll give you your money back. Love to see you at the conference. Go to rulesymposium.com. Learn all about the great speakers. Learn all about the great exhibitors. By the way, every public company exhibitor there is owned in a sponsored portfolio. That doesn't mean, sadly, that every stock I buy goes up, but it does mean that every exhibitor in my conference has been subjected to enough due diligence that we own them. Um... With regards to the second part of your question, uh, me, ruleinvestmentmedia.com, as an inducement to your, le- to your readers, uh, if you come there, there's a drop down. Uh, list your resource stocks. Please no tech. Please no pot stocks. Please no crypto. Uh, <laughs> I'll rank those stocks one to 10, uh, and I'll comment on individual issues where I think my comments might have some value.
0: And, Rick, we're not talking just like you own 100 shares in the company. Like, I'm, I'm okay if you own
1: 100. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, okay I'm sorry. I, I, I don't I'm want talking somebody about to drop a, a, I don't I was, want somebody drop a laundry list of 100 companies that they're considering. No, no, no you,
0: I, I would say for the conference, like, oh, the sponsor, like, yeah, no, oh, we're I'm sorry. No, 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 we got 100 shares in this one. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, I don't take,
1: I, for better or for worse, I don't take I'm small positions. If I've done enough work to invest, um, I want to be right.
0: I was, you know. just, I, I was just kidding. Yep. Nope. But Rick, I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. And uh, look forward to our next chat.
1: A pleasure. And say hi to your family for me
0: this podcast.